lay down, lay down, lay your sweet lovely on the ground, lay your love on the track, we're gonna break the monsters Just me and you can call over our phone. TV is still on, the sound is turned down. Troops on the ground are about to dig in. Where is the love? Where is the love? Love and peace. Let's pray. Lord God, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would help us to preach. We ask that you would help us to see Jesus the Christ. 
Amen. Luke chapter 19, verse 28, what the children read earlier. Having said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Traditionally, Jerusalem has been understood to mean city of peace. From the Sumerian words, Uru and Selim. Selim is, is like the Hebrew word shalom. So some have argued that Jerusalem is a Hebrew derivative, in which case it would mean teach peace or foundation of peace. Seven years ago, I was in Jerusalem with some folks from, from our church. At the Temple Mount, we saw this sign. It's describing the significance of the spot and the significance of the foundation stone in the middle of the Temple Mount, currently under this Muslim shrine, the Dome of the Rock. Orthodox Jews believe that here, on the foundation stone, Adam was created. And so here, or near here, the bride of Adam sold out to the devil, taking from the tree of knowledge in order to create herself in the image of God. She fell, and Adam fell with her. Genesis 14 may be the first biblical reference to Jerusalem. It tells of the king of Salem, Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God who meets Abraham in the King's Valley, which most likely was at the base of Gehenna. And there he blesses Abraham with bread and wine. The first really solid biblical reference to the location of Jerusalem is from Genesis 22, where God refers to Moriah. In 2 Chronicles, we know that Mount Moriah is the location of the temple. And uh, so when he refers uh, to Moriah in, in Genesis, we know the spot he's talking about. Genesis 22, too, God says to Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall show you. Now, you can't begin to understand this story unless you understand that the son of Abraham is the miraculous gift from God for which Abraham has waited his entire life. And that this son is the promised blessing through whom God has promised to bless all the families, all the families of the earth. And that this seed of Abraham is like the judgment on all humanity. For God says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. That's why some say that you must bless whatever the nation state of Israel decides to do because they are the seed of Abraham. Interestingly enough, Muslims also claim to be seed of Abraham, and according to Scripture, they are. Isaac and, and Ishmael are brothers. The New Testament argues that the promised seed of Abraham is not plural, not many, but singular. One guy. And you know his name. His name is Jesus. Well, in Genesis 22, verse 3, we read that Abraham rose early, saddled his ass, and took Isaac and traveled to Moriah. When he got there, he gathered wood and placed it on an altar. He, he placed his only begotten son on the wood on the altar. The 
the eights, uh, translated wood, but also translated tree or, or gallows. He prepared the fire, lifted the knife, and surrendered his control of the promised blessing, his son. He trusted that God was good, and even if Isaac died, God could raise him from the dead. As he prepared to plunge his knife into the body of his only begotten son, the angel of Yahweh, this strange God-man figure in the Old Testament, stops his hand and provides a substitute to take his son's place, a substitute for sacrifice on the foundation stone. About a thousand years later, a son of Abraham named David captured Mount Moriah, which had become a fortress called Mount Zion or Jerusalem by that time. King David wanted to build a house for God, and God revealed the spot for that house through David's sin. Is that incredible? 2 Samuel 24, David's sin was numbering his troops. That is, David relied on his military might rather than the grace of God to defend Jerusalem. Because of that, a plague falls on Israel, and 70,000 of David's men died that he just numbered. David sees an angel standing on this threshing floor on Mount Zion, standing between earth and heaven with a huge sword stretched out over the city, ready to smite the city. David's heart breaks. He drops to his knees, confesses his sin, and calls for God's judgment to fall on himself and his lineage rather than the city, the city of peace. Jesus is called the son of David. And it's the son of David that builds the temple, for God tells David that his hands are covered in too much blood. Solomon, you know, is the immediate son of David. Solomon means pre, uh, peace. He's, he's the prince of peace. The temple is built with stones prepared at the quarry so that no human tools would touch the stones on the holy mount. It's like, it's like a temple not made with human hands. And that temple is built on the threshing floor where David saw judgment. A threshing floor is a place, you know, where the wheat is separated from the chaff. And where often grapes are, are trodden in, in a press. I remember our Jewish guide telling me that archaeologists had found one of these on the temple mount, a place where they make bread and wine, the harvest of this earth. Well, David's descendants ruled Jerusalem for the next 550 years. However, the kingdom of Israel divides and Jerusalem begins to suffer great violence as Israelites war among themselves. However, prophets begin saying some amazing things about Jerusalem, that it will be destroyed and yet one day a king will come. A king will come and command peace to all nations. The government will be upon his shoulders and of the increase of his peace, there will be no end. He will swallow up death forever and wipe the tears away from all faces on his holy mountain, prophesies Isaiah. Well, in 720 BC, the northern kingdom called Israel falls to Assyria. 125 years later, Jerusalem in the southern kingdom is besieged three times and finally falls to the Babylonians. The Jews have broken covenant by trusting in foreign alliances rather than God. You know, all the major prophets refer to Jerusalem 
as a harlot. I mean, it's really kind of shocking when you read it. If you, if you want to see what I mean, read Ezekiel chapter 16. God says that she played the whore with Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and that they then all raped her. You know, the prophet Hosea is even commanded to marry a harlot so that he would feel what God feels. Well, around 540 B.C., Cyrus, the king of Persia, that's Iran, saves the Jews from Babylon, that's Iraq, and they return and rebuild the temple. In 312 B.C., General Ptolemy, under Alexander the Great, attacked and captured uh, the city on the Sabbath. For the next 140 years, Jerusalem was ruled by Greeks and subject to all their wars and to their desecrations. In, in 167 B.C., the Jews revolted, the Maccabean revolt. But when the Jews come to rule once again, they are as ruthless as any foreign power. Eighty years before the birth of Christ, Alexander Janus, who was the high priest and also king, Alexander Janus killed 6,000 Pharisees and barricaded the temple to all but Sadducees, of which he was one. Six years later, when the Pharisees finally surrendered, he had 800 Pharisees crucified outside the city walls. And he had their wives and children slaughtered in front of them as they hung on those crosses. In 63 BC, the son of Alexander Janus and his friend who became Herod the Great, well, they appealed to the Roman general Pompey, asking him to lay siege to the city in order to win a civil war in their favor, handing this city over to them. They made an alliance with Rome, and eventually Jerusalem was utterly raped, savaged by, by Rome. Exactly one generation, 40 years after Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple. In 70 AD, Titus, the Roman general, besieged and destroyed the city. Josephus, the Jewish historian, estimates that there were 1.1 million Jews in the city at that time. They were there for Passover. There for Passover when the siege began. The siege lasted for five months. And uh, just about every night, the Romans would catch about 500 Jews who snuck over the city walls trying to find food. And everyone they caught, they crucified. In 135 A.D., the Romans literally ran a plow over the site of the temple, the Temple Mount, so that not one stone would be left standing on top of another. And then the emperor of Rome banned all Jews from ever stepping foot in Jerusalem ever again. <laughs> no more Jews. And then something absolutely amazing happened. Over the next 300 years, the empire, the, the, the empire of, of Rome surrendered to a Jew. From the 4th century to the 7th century, Jerusalem was ruled by people that called themselves Christians. Followers of the king of the Jews. In the early 7th century, Jerusalem fell twice to the Persians. And then in 745 to Muslims and then various Muslim nations at war with each other. 350 years later, in 1095, 
thousands of miles away, a man who called himself the Vicar of Christ summoned the Christian nations of Western Europe to a crusade promising a remission of sins for all who undertook the journey to conquer the city of peace, Jerusalem. On June 7, 1099, the first crusaders arrived at the city walls. On July 15th, the crusaders breached the city wall. For three days, they slaughtered virtually every inhabitant of Jerusalem. Jews, Muslims, Christians. Some of the crusaders record their, quote, glorious conquest. William of Tyre writes this, No mercy was shown to anyone, and the whole place was flooded with the blood of the victims. Raymond of Aguiars writes this, In the temple and porch of Solomon, which was actually the dome of the rock, they, they didn't know that, men rode in blood up to their knees and bridle reins. Fulcher of Chartres writes this, Within this temple, about 10,000 were beheaded. And if you had been there, your feet would have been stained up to the ankles with the blood of the slain. What more shall I tell? Not one of them was allowed to live. They did not spare the women and children. Our squires and poor people split the bellies of those dead Sarakins so that they might pick out the gold coins from their intestines, which they had swallowed down their horrible gullets while they were alive. After several days, they made a great heap of their bodies and burned them to ashes, and in these ashes they found the gold more easily. Crusader is based on the Latin word crus, meaning cross. Crusader means one who bears a cross. Not one who nails other people to a cross. Well, Muslims took the city back October 2nd, 1187. The exact anniversary of Muhammad's night journey when it said he ascended to heaven from the rock on the Temple Mount. From 1244 to 1917, 673 years, Jerusalem was ruled by various Islamic empires at war with each other. December 9th, 1917, the British captured Jerusalem from the Turks. December 9th was also the first day of Hanukkah that year. And now, of course, I am walking into some incredibly controversial territory for which I have taken a lot of heat over the years. A bit of history involving the creation of the nation-state of Israel. Some view it as a massive humanitarian effort following the absolute horrific acts of the Nazi empire. Some view it as an invasion of Palestine. In 1917, there were about 54,000 Jews in Palestine. Today, about 5 million. In 1920, before World War II, under Arab pressure, the British began to limit immigration to Palestine. In response, Jewish paramilitary groups resorted to terrorist activities. They killed thousands. In the 40s, they assassinated the British Minister of Middle Eastern Affairs and blew up a wing of the King David Hotel. In 1948, the United Nations partitioned Palestine, creating a Jewish state and an Arab state, and uh, making Jerusalem a protectorate of the UN for all nations. Well, the surrounding Arab countries immediately declared war on the new nation state of, of Israel, and Israel prevailed. Despite five wars, and Palestinian terrorism that killed thousands, Israel prevailed. 
And Israel has prevailed, backed by some very powerful foreign alliances, chief of those being us. Since 1948, adjusted for inflation, the U.S. has given Israel $233.7 billion in foreign aid. $3.1 billion is budgeted for this year. There are some wonderful humanitarian reasons for that much aid. Wonderful reasons. And there are also strategic reasons for that much aid. And sometimes I wonder if Jerusalem is a reason for that much aid. In the last 150 years or so, a particular brand of end times theology became really popular in Great Britain and the United States of America. It advanced the idea that Jesus Christ would return 40 years after the creation of the nation-state of Israel and the rebuilding of a stone temple on the spot of the Dome of the Rock Shrine. I find that theology impossible to square with Scripture. But I think it's so very attractive to Brits and Americans because it seems to make the city of God something that we can, like, conquer with guns and tanks and cash. So even though the world didn't end in 1988 as predicted, and even though the state of Israel defines herself in such a rather un-American sort of way by race or religion, we American Christians are just extra supportive because we'd like a stake in the city of Jerusalem. Well, how do you conquer Jerusalem, the city of peace? The Six-Day War, third of five Arab-Israeli wars, a conflict whose outcome was made inevitable by air power on the first day. A war fought on three fronts, each quite different. The Sinai Desert, scene of dramatic tank battles and the destruction of an entire army. The largely urban street battles in Jordan as the Israelis fought their way into the holy city of Jerusalem. And the mountainous Golan Heights, torn from Syrian control by bulldozers, tanks, and infantry. That's actual footage of the last time Jerusalem was conquered. 868 years to the day after those medieval crusaders first appeared at the city walls. This is a chart of all the times that Jerusalem has been attacked or conquered. The city of peace is easily the most violent and violated city in the whole world. Look at this chart, study it for a while, and, and I, I think you might be a little bit surprised uh, that one conqueror, one conqueror is, is missing. And we Christians claim that he entered the city, conquered the city, and indeed conquered all things. And this is how he did it.
the definition of crusade. Luke 19 describes how Jesus entered the city. I hope you caught these things. Jesus is the last Adam who redeems Eve, his harlot bride. Did you see him fighting for the soul of the city? Jesus is high priest after the order of Melchizedek, king of Salem. Jesus is the promised seed, sacrificed on Mount Moriah in obedience to his father and given to us as bread and wine. Bread from the threshing floor and wine from the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is like the culmination of this incredible story that God has been telling for all of time. Jesus is the plot. Jesus is the seed of Adam, seed of Abraham, son of David, who builds the temple, and he said, destroy it. And in three days, I will build it up. And so Zechariah prophesied, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, an ass, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. You know, I think some, maybe, maybe all of us, will we, we kind of act like Jesus failed. And so he'll have to come back with a new tactic, a new attitude the second time around. And yet scripture says that he does not change. And Jesus said to Caiaphas, from now on, from this point forward, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And he told his disciples that all that was written of him and the prophets had to be fulfilled. And on the cross he cried, it is accomplished. Isaiah prophesied saying, comfort Jerusalem, cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished that her iniquity is pardoned it is finished and yet it doesn't seem finished I mean maybe what seems true isn't true I mean it doesn't we don't see it finished but maybe we don't see so good in Luke 19 Jesus said if these disciples are silenced, the very stones will cry out. And you know, Scripture talks quite a bit about living stones that sing praises. And in the Revelation, John sees a new Jerusalem, not that will come down, but that is coming down. She's built with living stones, and she's a bride. And that's not some obscure theme that you only find in the, in the Revelation. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, they all refer to Jerusalem as a bride, as a harlot bride, a bride who cheats on her bridegroom, but a bride that will be redeemed by covenant blood. In John 12, Palm Sunday, Jesus records, uh, or Luke records Jesus as, or John records Jesus as saying this, that, that as he was going into the city, he, he lifted his head and he said this, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And John adds this, he said, uh, to show the manner of death which he would die. 
I will draw. That can also be translated, I will romance all people to myself. So on Palm Sunday, Jesus was conquering Jerusalem. Not with tanks, but romance. You know, if Jerusalem is just real estate, well, then you can use brute force, guns and money. If a woman is just a body, well, then you can use brute force and guns and money. But if a woman is more than a body and you want her heart, well, it takes a different sort of weapon. If Jerusalem is a bride, well, well, even if you try, you cannot conquer with this or like this, with tanks. It must look something more like this. He died well. That should please you. No bribe attempts or blubbering. She simply said, please. Please, I need to live. It was the please that caught my memory. I asked him what was so important for him here. True love, he replied. And then he spoke of a girl of surpassing beauty and faithfulness. I can only assume he meant you. You should bless me for destroying him before he found out what you really are. And what am I? Faithfulness he talked of, madam, your enduring faithfulness. Now tell me truly, when you found out he was gone, did you get engaged to your prince that same hour, or did you wait a whole week out of respect for the dead? You mocked me once, never do it again! I died that day! You can die too for all I care! Oh. As you wish! Oh, my sweet Wesley, what have I done? Ow! Can you move at all? Move? You're alive. If you want, I can fly. I told you I would always come for you. Why didn't you wait for me? Well, you were dead. Death cannot stop true love. All it can do is delay it for a while. I will never doubt again. There will never be a need. You haven't conquered a bride until she opens her gates and lets you in. Anything else is rape. I, I certainly hope that you've seen that movie, The Princess Bride. Wesley has been romancing Buttercup from the start when he was just a farm boy and he would always say to her, as you wish. He left to seek his fortune and return for Buttercup. When he finally does return, Buttercup is engaged to an evil prince Thinking that Wesley is, is, is dead, she's engaged. She, she surrenders to that engagement. She doesn't know that the one she's uh, fearing at the time, the dread pirate Roberts, who's chasing her, is her, her one true love. It's not until she tries to kill him 
that she sees who it is and surrenders her heart. As he's falling, he cries, as you wish. And she wishes to fall with him. And he gets his wish, for he wished that she'd wish for him like he wished for her. Luke 19, verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had seen, they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept. He wept over it. That's an amazing scene. Throngs of people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. I mean, you would think that Jesus would be overjoyed with the situation, but just look, he's weeping. I mean, it's so ironic, and it seems to me almost like a little mean, the way we set the kids up with palm branches. I mean, it's tradition, okay, to wave the palm branches on palm branches. But look, kids, look at Jesus. He's weeping. Why is he weeping? And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Could it be that we do not know the things that make for peace? And so we say things like pray for the peace of Jerusalem and we expect God to answer with tanks and politicians. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem and, and, and we don't know what makes for peace. For perhaps we don't actually even see Jerusalem Jerusalem is a bride, made not with stones, but people. How do you capture the city? Well, how do you capture a bride? How do you capture your child's heart, mom or dad? How do you capture your enemy's heart? Isaac, how do you capture your brother Ishmael's heart? Well, I think in the midst of pain, you speak a word at just the right time, a word like, as you wish. Or, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You may feel like an ass, but you see the word of God rides an ass and conquers the city and even makes the city the city of peace. And now I know what you may be thinking. Come on, Peter. Okay, fine. But what's Israel, to, what's the nation state of Israel to do? What's the United States of America to do? What's the kingdom of the United States of America to do? Listen closely. I do not know. I really don't. But I do know that no kingdom of this world can make peace, not real peace. That takes weapons from another kingdom, the kingdom of God. 
And you may say, well, okay, look, look, Peter, if you go into situations like that with no guns, no tanks, no military, no cash, you'll get yourself killed. And what good will that will do? If you go into situations like that with nothing but a word, you'll get yourself crucified. Exactly. You'll become a crusader. Or the body of the crusader. His body broken. His blood shed. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Maybe he's weeping because we don't know how to conquer the city and because he knows that we don't want him to conquer the city. And we are the city. Maybe we don't know the time of our visitation, for we don't truly see the one who is visiting. I mean, oh, we see, but, but no, we, we really, really don't see. Evil men only see a woman's body. And evil women only see a man's power. Jesus knows that in five days when he performs no mighty works, Jerusalem will begin to chant, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. They want signs and miracles and mighty works. They want the power of God, but not the heart of God. They want a new Herod or a new Caesar in order to kick out the old Caesar, but do they, not, they do not want to open the gates of their hearts to a king like Jesus. Jerusalem is a whore. She wants Jesus' stuff, but not Jesus. She does not wish to be conquered by love. She does not wish to be conquered by love, and it's as if Jesus says, as you wish, kill me and have Rome. You hate Rome, but you want Rome, and you'll get Rome and be violated by Rome. You see, the wrath of God is that he hands us over to the abusers that we have chosen. We are delivered up. But delivered up for a reason. Delivered up for the destruction of our flesh. The destruction of our arrogance and our pride and our independence. The destruction of the city that we have built in order to become the city that God has built. The city that opens her gates to Jesus. For you see, he refuses to take our hearts any other way. He waits for us to say, as you wish. He refuses to take our hearts by force, even though something within us kind of wants that because it relieves us of the burden of the freedom of freely given and, and freely received love. 
He refuses to take our hearts by force. He refuses to conquer us with his strength until we choose him in weakness. He refuses to let us see Easter until we've been to his cross. So when the crowds of Jerusalem do not know the time of their visitation, they deliver Jesus to Rome for crucifixion. And Jesus does not resist with his limitless strength. He surrenders to his bride in weakness. As if to say, as you wish. And now do you see what you wish? And now would you begin to wish for me as I have wished for you? She delivered Jesus to Rome for crucifixion. And God delivered Jerusalem to Rome for destruction. But when Jerusalem was destroyed, Jerusalem and the whole world began to see Jesus Christ and him crucified. She began to see and to wish what he wished. And she is the new Jerusalem coming down. A temple destroyed and rebuilt in three days. A temple cleansed of money changers and filled with grace. No longer a harlot, but the bride. In the Revelation, John sees the great harlot destroyed by the kings of this earth. And then he sees the word riding a war horse and, and, and conquering the word. And then he sees the new Jerusalem coming down. It's in the midst of the destruction of our old city, in the midst of all that pain that we begin to hear and we begin to see the word of God. It looks weak. And it may be riding an ass, <laughs> but nothing is more powerful. Through Hosea, speaking to his harlot bride, God says this, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will romance her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will make the valley of Achor. That means the valley of trouble. There I will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. There she shall call me my husband. In the midst of trouble and pain, he speaks his word and makes a door of hope. And his name is Jesus. You know, I used to take Susan to scary movies just so she'd cling to me. The movies weren't real. But my love for Susan was real. This world is not very real. But Jesus is real. He is the word through whom all things are created, including Jerusalem. Well, Jesus knew that he would conquer Jerusalem and capture her heart, and yet he wept, for she did not know the time of her visitation. I wonder if we know the time of our visitation. Because, you know, they sure did miss it 2,000 years ago on Palm Sunday. And so I wonder if we miss it today, because we worship power and money and strength, and maybe then we miss our Lord who comes to us in weakness, in the poor, in the sick, in the suffering, in the persecuted. He said, whatever you do unto the least of these, my brothers, you, you do unto me. Whatever you do unto the least of these, my brothers. You know, Ishmael is Isaac's brother. 
And Isaac is blessed to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Well, I wonder if we miss the time of our visitation because we are Jerusalem and we just seem to forget how we have been conquered. Well, it may be that the word of God has ridden into your city this morning on an ass. If so, don't be offended. But open the gates and let him in. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant, the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. And so, Lord Jesus, I confess to you that you, well, you kind of terrify me. Because although this world is so profoundly evil, you are so profoundly good. And I think to myself, there's no way that I can love like that. And then, Lord, I, I realize that I, I need to first be loved like that. And so, Lord God, that terrifies us as well. That you love us with such abandoned and such relentless fury and you stand at the door and knock you stand at the city gates even bleeding and broken calling to us to open our hearts to you so I don't know exactly what this means for you but maybe you can just say this now in your heart Lord Jesus I surrendered my city to you. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice. Come to the table and be conquered. In his name, amen. How he
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched. And then 22. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And I don't think you do, because I saw you. Don't mean to freak you out, but you realize what just happened, Jerusalem? Bride of Christ? You came forward and you participated in a covenant, an eternal blood covenant. And you received seed, eternal seed, into yourself, Bride of Christ. And you see, because you did that, you might just get pregnant with fruit, with the love that has been given to you. And so believe the gospel, you see, and you begin to live the gospel. He does love you. The Father has always loved you. Jesus has always loved you. The Spirit always loves you. So believe it and live in his name.